If you recall, um, when I introduced the, the Gospel of Mark a few weeks ago, Mark does not waste any time and doesn't waste any words. Um, he likes to keep the story going. And as we've already seen with all his and thens and immediately's um, in the first chapter, uh, it, he keeps up the pace here. And so we're going to be in chapter 2 and even in chapter 3 a little bit today. And Mark keeps up the pace. And so this sermon is going to be a little different um, because we're going to cover a lot of text this morning. All of chapter 2 and a little bit of chapter 3. So hold on to your seats, okay? Um, so these are five short stories um, that together they form a little bit of a subunit um, for, in Mark's gospel. And so we're, we're not going to read them together, but I am going to summarize each of them. Um, so I encourage you to follow along this morning. So take out your Bibles if you brought them. I give you permission. You can take out your phone and open your Bible app. And I don't know which Bible app you use, okay? But let me assure you, it does not start with, the, with Insta, okay? It can be another app for the Bible. Um, but otherwise, you can have your phones out. Uh, so follow along with me. Because again, we're just going to work through this together. Um, and so I'm going to summarize each of the stories. I'm going to point out some highlights. And then ultimately, we'll see if we can hear a word from God from these stories as a whole. Sound good? All right. So chapter 2. Look at this first story. And it starts off, Mark telling us that there is a large crowd. Jesus has, has come back to Capernaum again, and the people have gathered. Right? This, this theme is building about Jesus drawing crowds. But at this, this time, he's in a house, and there's so many people that the house is completely full, and nobody can get in. And I'm guessing a lot of you know this story about the paralytic man. Uh, if you grew up like me, if you're my age or so, um, this is a classic story with the old flannel graph in Bible class. Can I get an amen? You might know that, right? Yeah, you young ones, don't worry about it. Um, uh, but get this story right, and you get to do, 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 lower the guy down on the mat. Okay, so we have this paralytic man, his four friends bring him to the house, and they can't get in. It's too crowded um, and so they do something pretty amazing but I want to stop here right and recognize this is a funny story you can laugh at the Bible this is ridiculous what happens here okay four guys they show up their friend is a paralytic he's on a mat on a pallet they can't get in and the obvious decision the obvious thing to do is what climb on the roof with a guy who can't move on a mat. I feel like there's some other options. I'm, I'm thinking like walk up there and just yell snake or something to clear the room. There's got to be some better ways. But no, we're going to climb up on a roof. I mean, and then we're going to get on the roof and we're going to dig a hole in the roof. Dig a hole. Now think about this. This isn't a little hole like this small, right? This is a hole into which a grown man can fit through laying on a mat. Okay, so they're digging this six-foot hole in somebody else's roof. This is not their house. I don't know whose house it is. We can guess. But whoever it is, I'm guessing, is not real happy when they're listening to Jesus and all of a sudden they look up and dirt starts falling down. 
And then sunlight breaks through. I mean, what? And then these guys, they're on the roof. They've dug a hole. Now they're going to lower him. How do you lower a guy on a mat? I mean, did they come prepared with ropes? I don't know. My guess is now they're holding this mat and they're all laying down on this roof trying to get him down to the ground. And my guess is they can't reach all the way. And so I'm just thinking, you know, halfway down they're lowering him like, well, I guess we've got to kind of let him go the rest of the way. Oops, you know, and drop him to the ground. I don't know. But this is, a, this is comedic here. This is ridiculous what's happening. And at the end of the day, they're going to leave this house. And some poor chap is looking up at his roof. Well, anyways, I don't know how to make sense of this story, uh, but it's funny to picture. It's funny to think about. But here's really the point of the story, is they finally get him lowered, this paralytic man. Jesus sees him. I'm guessing even Jesus was a little surprised to see this happening, and comes down, he lays down, and sees this man, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? Excuse me? That's not what we we're expecting in the story here. Your sins are forgiven. Well, there's some scribes there, some teachers of the law. These are those people that, that want to help people understand the law, kind of low level, but they're still religious leaders. Okay? And they're there, and they don't like this. Your sins are forgiven. And they're thinking in their minds, only God can forgive sins. And look what Jesus says immediately in verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he does. See, the scribes are there to see Jesus' power. But they don't like seeing his mercy. Now here's really the interesting part to me. In this story, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven because of your faith, man laying down on the mat? No. He says, because of your friend's faith, your sins are forgiven and you can walk. So in this story, we see sometimes... Our faith may be weak. Sometimes we might be in a situation that leaves us stuck or paralyzed because of what life is dealing us. And this is when the faith of your community sustains you. This is when the faith of your brothers and sisters can save you. So surround yourself with people who will climb on roofs and lower you through a hole in order to get you walking again. And Jesus goes on. So starting in verse 13, we get another story of calling disciples, or a disciple in this instance, Levi. Oh, Levi, the tax collector. So 
It starts off and we see that there's another large crowd here. So again, paying attention, this large crowd. And Jesus sees the tax collector and says, come and follow me. Now, we have to understand tax collectors, okay, they're not, they're not well loved by the people, especially by Jews. They're not loved because, one, they're collecting taxes for Rome. Ugh, the great enemy. So these tax collectors are traitors. They're working for the enemy. But more than that, I think, that is a key part, but there's also tax collectors, mm, they like to take a little for themselves. And so tax collectors are known for corruption, for extorting people, and then spending it on themselves. This is what tax collectors are like. And so when Jesus then calls Levi and ends up eating, reclining at a table with Levi, with, as the text says, with tax collectors and sinners, oh boy. The teachers of the law don't like it. Now note here, now we have teachers of the law or scribes of the Pharisees, it says. So this is now a little bit higher rank, these teachers of the law. And they come questioning. They question his disciples, Jesus' disciples. And they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, it's interesting, so far, these scribes in these two stories, they haven't actually asked Jesus or accused Jesus directly of anything. And yet, Jesus shuts them down. You see his response in verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come. I have not come. To call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus, he takes the categories provided by the teachers of the law, and then he subverts their premise. Now I'll tell you, some other times in the Gospels, Jesus is going to take the categories that the religious leaders put on people, and he's going to challenge the categories this self, but themselves. But in this instance, he assumes the categories, but then he says, okay, those sinners, well, guess what? They're the ones I came for. I love how Jesus deals with the righteous, <clears throat> or should I say the self-righteous in the Gospels. Whenever they question why Jesus is with tax collectors or sinners or children or adulterers, or Samaritans, or prostitutes, or the unclean, or Gentiles. All the people who apparently aren't righteous enough for the religious leaders. Well, Jesus says, these are my people. So I got to say, as a religious leader myself, it's humbling to think, That if Jesus showed up in Belton today, I'd probably be the last person he'd eat with. Verse 18. Jesus gets questioned about fasting. So, the leaders, they show up, and now they're going to ask Jesus directly. 
Okay? But they're not going to ask directly about him. Now they're going to ask about his disciples. And they say, now why aren't your disciples, Jesus, fasting? Because look, the Pharisees, all of them, they're fasting. Even John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. Why aren't yours? So they've upped their game a little bit. They're challenging him directly. Excuse me. Um, And now we have that these are Pharisees. They've shown up, okay? And they don't like this because apparently picking grain on the Sabbath, well, that's unlawful. We can't be doing that. So Jesus comes along and he says, oh, my disciples, they're hungry. They can't pick grain on the Sabbath. Well, let me tell you this story. And he tells this story, if you look here, about David. He talks about David going in and eating the consecrated bread. Now, what's really fascinating here is Jesus tells this story about David, but he gets the details wrong. Interesting. Jesus tells this story, and he talks about when he went and saw the high priest, and he actually says it's the wrong high priest. So you got to wonder what's going on here. And I really don't know why Jesus says the wrong things. Some scholars say that maybe it's Mark, actually. Maybe Mark just gets it wrong. He remembers Jesus' story wrong, and so maybe Mark gets the wrong high priest and some other details wrong. I don't know. Maybe. I like to think that Jesus is really clever here, and that Here are the Pharisees and their self-righteousness, and we know the law and the scriptures. And Jesus is going to refute them by appealing to scripture, but he's going to get the details wrong to see if they're paying attention. right? And they just kind of like, okay, sure. And they walk off in shame. I don't know. That's my best guess. But regardless, Jesus comes along and says, hey, um, my people, they they can... I just realized, that I get off on, I did get off a little bit on my story, which story I'm in, didn't I? Sorry about that. Now I'm a little, I've confused you a little bit. Sorry. I've got my stories in reverse, so let's just stick with, um, stick with this. So this is now not about fasting. Bear with me here. Um, he tells the story about David when he's questioning about his disciples eating the grain, okay? So my fault, got off on my notes here. Um, and the Pharisees come along and they question him. Okay, and Jesus ends up saying about the Sabbath, okay, because they're picking grain on the Sabbath. He says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, this story is interesting that Jesus, he ends it this way. Because the Pharisees are really concerned about them not obeying the law, not obeying the Sabbath. And Jesus says, well, the Sabbath was made for man, made for humans. Because the Pharisees, they're really concerned about getting things right. And Jesus says, what if you actually paid attention to what the Sabbath is doing, wanting to give you rest Because the Pharisees themselves can't experience any rest because they're so concerned with getting it right all the time. And Jesus says, what if you could just rest? Okay, 
Now back to the story about fasting. My bad on that one. So on the fasting, we get um, Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. And the main thing here that I want you to notice is that Jesus says, well, my disciples, they can fast because the bridegroom is with them. This is a time to celebrate. Because fasting, there are a few different occasions in which somebody will fast. But one of the primary reasons people fast during this time period is because there's a time of mourning or it's a solemn occasion. Well, Jesus comes along and says, no, this is no time for mourning. This is no time to be solemn. This is no time to fast because the bridegroom is here. The one ushering in the reign of God is here. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time to feast. Something is happening here. And then finally, our fifth story. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. We have the story of Jesus healing a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. So here's Jesus. He's in the synagogue. And it says a man with a shriveled hand was there. But note here in verse 2 of chapter 3. It says some of them, and that means some of the Pharisees, Okay, this religious sect here that these temple agents, they're there. And it says some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. What pure motives, right? This is what they're concerned with. Can we catch him in the act? Well, and here comes Jesus, shutting them down again, subverting their categories now in this occasion. And he says in verse 4, Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And it says, and they remain silent. Yeah, no kidding. What are you going to say to that? And so, <clears throat> Jesus knew what they were looking for. Jesus knew that they came to accuse. He knew what they wanted him to do, and he did it. Jesus healed the man. So here are these five stories in quick succession. And what do they have in common? Well, first of all, the religious leaders, they're no fans of this Jesus guy. And, and the easy explanation for this is that they are very concerned with following the law perfectly. They're good, righteous people. And so, a new rabbi shows up. And they want to make sure he is orthodox, that he has good doctrine. And they wouldn't want Jesus to lead people away from the correct teachings and practices. But I think there's more going on than just the fact that they have a pure heart for God's law. I mean, remember what's happening as these encounters are going on. So here's Jesus, shows up on the scene, and he's teaching with authority. 
and the people are amazed. And crowds are gathering around him. And he's casting out impure spirits. And he's healing the sick. He's starting to get quite the following. And this makes those in power, those who want to protect the status quo, a little nervous. And so the first story, they have some scribes. Let's see what Mark is doing here, okay? So in the first story, we have some scribes, some some teachers of the law, and they're present. And they're not happy with Jesus pronouncing that this paralytic man's sins are forgiven. And you know, I actually don't blame these scribes. Because, I mean, Jesus hasn't actually said who he is. So they want to know who this guy thinks he is. Forgiving people of sins as if he was God. But also, they're concerned about how this guy is so unpredictable. And that he can draw crowds like this. I mean, what will this mean for maintaining order? And then... We get Jesus, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And it's the scribes of the Pharisees, for the Pharisees, who come questioning. So we've moved up a level on the religious leader scale. And they're a little worried. Because it's one thing for crowds to follow this guy. It's another if that crowd is made up of people like that. And then when they question why Jesus' disciples are not fasting like the Pharisees or even like John the Baptist's disciples, well, those groups, they don't don't seem too unruly. Be like them. Why can't your people be like that, Jesus? And then the Pharisees, they show up. This This is an official sect of Judaism. These agents who who protect the integrity of the temple and make sure everybody's doing things right, well, they want to keep order. And so they show up. When the Pharisees show up, that means, well, things are getting serious. And now, Jesus takes on the law directly. This whole Sabbath controversy And it's not that Jesus is doing away with the law. He's not. But he is definitely calling people to follow the spirit of the law. Or more precisely, as we'll see later in Mark, he is calling people to follow him. And the problem for the Pharisees is that when you start messing with clear lines between good and bad, black and white, us and them, well, things can get out of hand. And so they're finally, they're on the prowl. This Jesus guy is trouble. So they do their little sting operation in the synagogue, seeing if Jesus will heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus does. And now they know for certain that this Jesus, he's not playing by the rules. This Jesus He's not under their control. And so, at the end of this section, chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians 
how they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees are so concerned about Jesus changing things, about doing something new, that they're willing to team up with the Herodians. Okay, the Herodians, these are followers of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the, the ruler of this area, but he's just a puppet ruler for Rome. But he's got people who follow him and who keep order, who keep political order, because we don't want any uprisings. We don't want people getting any ideas and disrupting things and making Rome mad. So they're there to make sure things stay in order. And here the Pharisees are willing to team up with them just to keep this Jesus guy in line. To the point where killing him is the best solution. Why is Jesus so dangerous? Well, let's look at what Jesus drops right in the middle of these stories. In chapter 2, verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. <clears throat> no, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Hmm. So Jesus brings up these proverbs. I don't think these are original Jesus. Maybe they are. I don't know, but they sound like a proverb. I think they're kind of out there. And Jesus takes these two proverbs. You don't take an unshrunk piece of cloth and put it into a new garment, an old garment, because then when it shrinks, it will make the tear worse. You don't put old wine and uh, new wine and old wineskins. It'll burst. Okay, I'll tell you, it's kind of hard for us to understand these analogies, these proverbs. I, I was trying to think of some good modern-day analogies for new wine and new wineskins, for not putting old stuff with new stuff. Um, I don't have any great ideas, but I try to think, okay, if I'm telling this story now, it might be something like, um, don't put Windows 95 on a new computer. Okay, and you have to be over about 30 to get that one. That's fine, okay? Another old reference, don't put a Pioneer CD player in a Tesla. Okay, are you getting, so this is kind of what, what he's talking about. Um, one more I thought of is, um, <clears throat> when you build a new football team, don't have Jerry Jones as your owner, see, <laughs> right? This is what I'm talking about, right? Okay, no old wine and new wineskins, or vice versa, whatever that was. Yeah, right? Okay, so here's the thing. You have homework. I really tried to think of some really good ones. Those are what I could come up with. So here's your homework. I want you to think about what is a good modern analogy for our do not put old, uh, old, new wine in old wine skins. Okay? Be funny. Think of it. And I really, I'm serious right now. I want you to think about a good proverb, a good analogy, and I want you to email me this week. Okay? Spend some time thinking about it. I want you to give me your best. And then next week I'll reveal the winner of who's our, our best proverb writer. Okay? 
So I'm being for real. Send me some, okay? That way, next time I preach this sermon, I'll have more uh, good examples. So email me your best Proverbs that mean the same thing. So here's Jesus saying this proverb. Okay, what does he mean by this? And why this proverb in this context? Well, I think he's telling those around, and especially the religious leaders who want to keep control and maintain the status quo, well, he's telling them that the reign of God is breaking in. And so everything is changing. Jesus is doing something new. And when Jesus does something new, people are healed from being paralyzed, and their sins are forgiven. And tax collectors and sinners and others of low regard, well, they dine with the king. And people celebrate and they feast. And the hungry, well, they get fed. And people are able to rest. And shriveled hands get restored no matter what day it is. Old wineskins get busted because Jesus is new wine. So a few years ago, Anne uh, was doing a, getting her certificate in spiritual direction at SMU. It's a three-year program, and she would go for the weekends often, um, and <clears throat> each had a cohort. And somewhere along in the three years, um, one of the weekends, they were talking about discipleship. And what does discipleship mean in light of spiritual direction, um, helping people kind of connect to God, to walk alongside people as they discern the voice of God in spiritual direction. What does discipleship look like in the midst of that? And so they're talking about what is discipleship. And her professor said this line that stuck with her and that she's used multiple times and now she shared with me and has stuck with me. And what this professor said to sum up what is discipleship? He said, discipleship is imagining new ways to be fully alive in Christ. This is what Jesus came to do, to offer a way to be fully alive. And if our doctrine or rule following or need to maintain order can get in the way of people being healed or welcomed to tables or given food or receiving mercy, then we have missed Jesus' invitation to be fully alive. Even if the religious leaders didn't like it, Jesus did change everything. And Jesus changes everything now. The religious leaders may not, may have wanted to keep old wineskins, but Jesus was about making new things. And Jesus is now about making things new. Jesus is not calling us to come follow rules. Jesus is not calling us to get everything right. And Jesus is certainly not calling us to make sure everyone else is behaving themselves. Jesus is calling us to follow him so that we can be fully alive.